expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Yes, it is the opening ceremony for episode 125 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. But, you know, I don't know about you, Nick, but the last time I ran track was on the Nintendo Power Pad. Last time I ran track was in ninth grade at Henniger High School in Syracuse, New York. Wow, you are a fitter and more active man than I. Yes. <laughs> yes, by far and away, because my track career turned into a college football career, so... Uh, I was truly, truly blessed to be born athletic. There you go. I'm James with the And the Merkel one arm, Nick Battaglia. And last week, man, it was really, really hot on the show. We'll just say that. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I think we're still feeling the burn marks from uh, talking about Eclipse with Zach Kaplan from Top Cow and Image Comics. Hopefully you already pre-ordered it. The pre-order cutoff was this past Monday. I'm seeing a lot of chatter about it on Facebook and on Twitter. And it's just one of those books where, you know, when you read the synopsis, anytime you go to like, a website and you're reading about, you know, what comics are going to be coming out. You always kind of check out the synopsis. And that one just jumped right out at me. I'm like, this is such an interesting story, not just because of the, you know, the whole killer aspect, but this is something in, in Eclipse that you never know could actually happen someday. Right. And, you know, the whole thing to go a little bit of a science route, you know, the whole thing with global warming or things like that and the ice caps melting. It's one of those things where this, if, if something like this happens with the sun, this would be the what we would have to do, and again, it's the how how would we live? Would you know even though we're underground? Would going out to the underground market would that be considered going outside? Yeah. You know, it's it's really weird. It's kind of like a weird underground mega city structure like we see in Judge Dredd. Right, exactly. And I mean, thinking about how, and we, you know, we talked about how that would affect the society and would eventually deteriorate and how people deal with stuff like that. And, and then all of a sudden, now you've got a killer on the loose, too. So you've got that aspect of it. And I love the science and technology part. I love that that didn't just get shoved to the side. I like that there was focus on that. And there's that underlay of there's another story going on here part that really drew me to this first issue especially. Exactly. Speaking of stories that drew us to the first issue, a series that has six issues but we're already in the first two, the third one's coming out next month, of course, is Kong of Skull Island. We're going to be joined, of course, by the creative team behind that book this week. Yes, we've got Carlos Magno going to talk to us about the art on Kong Skull Island. You might remember him from the Planet of the Apes book, so it's like, hey, subject and medium, pretty good idea there. <laughs> so then we've also got the writer James Asmus coming on to talk about his vision. He's actually, he's been a playwright and all this other stuff, so it's going to be very interesting to talk to him about his take on the series. Exactly. Come next is what we're reading. We have two new books this week. Find out what they are on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Zach Kaplan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, folks, it's time that we take out our long boxes and we see what we're reading this week. Now, James, your travels, every week you travel somewhere, whether it be to a land of fantasy with I Hate Fairyland or some other places, whether it be Gotham or Metropolis. But this week, you travel to the City of the Dead. Yeah, actually, in London, as a matter of fact, 19th century London, albeit late, with uh, Witchfinder, City of the Dead, which, of course, you know, it's from the Hellboy realm, so it's another Hellboy spinoff, and the great Mike Mignola did the writing, also Chris Robertson on there as well, Ben Stenbeck did the art, and we have Dave Stewart on the colors, Michelle Madsen that did the cover art. Now, I will say this, the, the art, I'll start off with the art, the art is actually 
really good. And we've kind of gotten that from these Hellboy spinoff books. I know that we've both done a Lobster Johnson book in the past, and the art's been very, very good. But I liked the way they started out in the subway in, in this book. And, you know, it's kind of got that creepy feeling. And then inevitably, inevitably, as these stories often do, there's something that they find while they're working on it. And they explore it, and that's where the story starts. What I thought was interesting was, though, is that once they find Sir Edward Grey, who is the Witchfinder, by the way, if you're not familiar with the Hellboy stories, you find him, and he's kind of in a mood, I guess is the best way that you could describe it. Yeah, pretty much. Like, the first panel you really see of him is, like, he's sitting in, like, this darkened room. It's kind of, like, very, quote, the Raven-esque feel to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that. that's a pretty dark and deepened mood to... to Introduce like, somebody in a comic. Just a single window, and you see that, like, that single pane of light coming in type of deal. Right. But basically, I mean, he's come off a rough case. Somebody wants his services, and it's one of those things where he's like, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, want to do this or not. And then once he gets to where he is, he's like, I don't see why you called me for this. I'm like, this guy just really doesn't want to do this, does he? But... Something happens, as it always does, and it makes him decide to go on the case. I don't want to say what happens, because I don't want... Because it's kind of a spoiler of the entire story. But I will say this. When I saw the title of the book, I was intrigued. And when I saw that it was going to be another Hellboy spinoff, I was intrigued again, because I thought they've done a very good job with these Hellboy spinoffs. But the story that they decided to take, and the mystery i guess that they're trying to solve and the things that are involved i was disappointed because i'm like really we're gonna go this route because it feels like this has been done a lot and it's not that sir edward gray isn't a badass and it's not that you know it's not written well because it is but it's like haven't we done this already before and you know you and i were talking off the air there were times where It felt like the book was too long. There was too much dialogue that didn't really seem to matter. It seems like they could have gotten to the point a little bit faster. Yeah, see, I couldn't finish the book because I got to not even mid-book, and it was just so much dialogue where I'm like, there's just so much words going on to the point where it kind of at times drew you away from the art. And I'm like, oh, God. And then also you look at it like when you teams of what they're doing, and it's from a story aspect, you kind of wonder if in certain areas, like a Victorian age or whatever... They feel like they're now being handcuffed to certain creatures and certain things and events that happen inside of those areas in those periods, you know? Right, and it just feels like it didn't give me what I expected, I guess, and maybe that's my fault. Um, And you do get some Hellboy references, there's Easter eggs uh, in in the book and stuff like that, which is great, but um, I mean, I guess unless you're a diehard Hellboy fan... I don't know if you can really appreciate this particular story. I think the Lobster Johnson stuff that they've done has been very, very good. And even if you're not a Hellboy fan or a big Hellboy fan, I think you can still enjoy it. But with this, it just left me with a, I was kind of hoping they'd go, you know, you you see Witchfinder and you kind of expect something else, I guess. It's not that there isn't potentially some magical stuff going on here. I mean, I guess going into issue two, they, they don't really go into exactly why what's happening is happening. They just kind of give you a little bit of backstory and what it might be. So you don't really know why this is occurring or what it is exactly. So maybe it'll be different in issue two. I'm just not sure that that I'm interested in going there. I think I got to do a drop on this. Yeah, I, I totally, totally understand that fact, man. I mean, again, 
when you have so much dialogue in there and it really doesn't feel like it's attributing to anything and it's pulling you away from certain other aspects of the book, that's a big problem. That's a very, very yeah. big problem. Like like when I did All-Star Batman last week, there was a lot of dialogue in there, but it was meaningful dialogue. It lent itself to the story, like the whole thing with, with Batman and Two-Face in the plane. I'm sure you've read it by now, so no spoiler alerts here. Yep. When they're in the plane and there's a lot of dialogue going on, it's meaningful dialogue, and it lends itself to the story. And what's going to happen in the later pages with this, it was like... Okay, I get it. He doesn't really want to do this case. He doesn't know why he's here. Why are we still talking about it? Right, and for me this week, James, let's transition into my book this week. We all know that one of my top five, hell, I would say even top three favorite comic book characters is Spawn. Spawn was actually an answer on an episode of Family Feud I was watching the other day. Really? Actually, yep. Yep, he wasn't number one, but he was up there. <laughs> <laughs> and so this week I decided to go to Image and I decided to read Spawn Kills Everyone, which, of course, is a one-shot by Todd McFarlane, who, of course, wrote it. J.J. Kirby did the art. F.C.O. Plancencia did the coloring. And Tom Orzachowski did the lettering. And I just want to say this. the art. I'll also start with the art. It's so beautiful. Plancencia's colors are great. Even the colors inside the lettering are beautiful. And everything just feels like it melds well together. It's very clean it's very detailed oriented and it's really really when it comes to spawn killing people it's graphic but it's kind of like it has a little bit of a comedy element to it and with that comedic element it comes with the writing as well now people have to realize with this book spawn kills everyone it's a one shot there there's a little bit of a hint at the end maybe they'll do another one maybe this might be a nice. little bit of an ongoing series or like a once in a while series because there's a question mark at the end but it is, this comic is not your typical Spawn, you know, Al Simmons, kill people, fight demons book. This is the one of the most hilarious pieces of satire I have read in a long time. Excellent. I like it when they turn stuff on its head like that, especially with a character like Spawn. You expect him to follow the status quo, but every now and then you take that right turn from status quo and you can come up with something gorgeous. Well, for example, Spawn this isn't your typical tall, muscular character. He is like, if to put it in a way, he looks like a cherub pretty much. Nice. And there's a reasoning for that. And people who look at the cover and they look inside of the yard and say, oh, why is Spawn you know, drawn like this? He actually makes a hilarious joke as to why he's drawn the way he is in the book. And pretty much without going too much into the story because it's a big, it's pretty much, this is one of those books where it's a one shot, so you have to be careful about spoilers. Mm -hmm. But let's just say the reason why he kills everybody, it all takes place, and the reason for it takes place at San Diego Comic-Con. And it's literally, Ah. and they literally call it San Diego Comic-Con. They don't shy away from any IPs or any names or anything like that. (laughs) Trademark pending, patent pending. (laughs) And people are probably wondering, you know, how is this different from Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe and this person kills this? Again, it's satire. And the way that McFarlane writes it, there is a little bit of a feel to those kind of past titles. But again, you're going to get that kind of feel when you're dealing with something like this. And his reasoning, again, for killing people is hilarious. And it becomes more of a misunderstanding than I'm just going to kill this person. 
it's you know it's him pretty much just working his way through the convention center and then coming across cosplayers pretty much <laughs> and, and and he has a certain announcement he wants to make and so he comes across these cosplayers and he mistakes them for their actual on-screen you know actors and actresses that's pretty hilarious and so it's just great and then there's uh, a certain appearance, special appearance at the end, which is hilarious. I'll tell you this, James, off the air. Okay. But the way that they do it is just, again, this is, it just had me laughing. Like, I sat up this morning, it was the first thing I did this morning was read this comic. And it's just, I love it. I want more. I want an ongoing series, probably like a monthly series, or maybe a bi-monthly or something like that, of, you know, little mini spawn and make this more of like a comedic route. I think that this is, a, in a sense, a very fresh take and a fresh breath of air into the Spawn series by McFarlane. You know, I just feel like maybe McFarlane wanted to do something a little bit different and found a unique take that he could do, and this is it. And i got to be honest, when I saw the art, it kind of made me feel a little bit like Scotty Young. I was looking, yeah. I was looking at the art, and I'm like, I'm getting a Scotty Young vibe here, and then I'm thinking, when you want to talk about crossovers, what about an I Hate Fairyland Spawn Kills Fairyland crossover? Kind of thing? Let's do that, right? That would be hilarious. I mean, it's all in the family. Why Pretty not? Much. You can, <laughs> yeah, do that crossover, but I have to give this a poll, man. This is, you know, something that you want to go out and buy, because again, it is a one-shot, but you got to love what they did with this. Like I said, the writing is great. It felt like a great breath of fresh air. The art is just beautiful. The colors pop. You know, everything about this book works. It just works. It's beautiful. And whether you read this digitally or you have it in your hand physically, it's beautiful. It's just great. It's a great, great thing. It's one of those things where if you're feeling, I'll say this, if you're feeling sad at times, I would pull this book out and read it because you'll get laughs and your mindset will change from this book. See, that's good that because there are so few things I feel like nowadays that have that kind of rereadability. There are certain things that you'd probably read it one or more times, but from what you're saying, it seems like this is one that you just pick up anytime and just read it several times. And that's going to do it for what we're reading, but come up next. We're heading to Hickory, Indiana with our review of Netflix's Stranger Things. Stay tuned. This is cartoonist Scotty Young, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, this week in Geektainment is literally a month in the making, and after month, still one of the most hotly talked about shows all over social media is Stranger Things. So we thought, hey, we've got some time. Let's talk about Stranger Things and review the entire series and now... I'm going to preface this before we let Nick jump in and talk about how awesome the series was, because I think this is pretty obvious. This is going to be spoiler-filled. Now, I know it's been a month, but maybe you're still a little bit behind. Maybe you're on episode six or something like that. So this is going to be spoiler-filled. So with that, Nick, let's just talk about... I mean, let's not even dance around, oh, is it good, is it not? I, I just... I mean, come on. Yeah, when people are still talking about it a month after its release, and I, mind you, I just got into it over the weekend. So, after a month of you pretty much pushing me, you gotta I watch it. I pestered you. But I badgered right. you to but watch it. But my thing is, there's like, for people who don't know, when it comes to shows, I like picking out one show, catch up on it first. For, for example, I'm all caught up in Game of Thrones right now, so I'm good on that aspect, you know? So it's like, I hate bouncing around with different shows because I never tend to finish them if, I'm, if I have, like, five different shows to watch at once if I'm behind on any of them. And so I'm watching this, and, you know, I've, I've said this on the show a bunch of times. I have a you know, degree in film. I studied cinematography and everything else. 
when you look at the 80s film era and how things were shot, granted this is 2016, but I felt that everybody on this crew, especially the creators behind this show, really studied and really looked at and used to their benefit the way that 80s movies and even especially the sci-fi 80s movies and the mm-hmm. horror 80s movies were shot with the certain camera angles, uh, the certain panning shots, and even with the lighting because there are certain times where I was watching the show and I'm like, wait, is that is that film grain? Okay, no, it looks like they maybe maybe they shot on the red. I don't know what camera they shot on. But it's just the way it looked like it looked like they were shooting on like you know an older camera, even though maybe they were shooting on something like the red camera, which is you know the most common used one today. But just the way they used it and just the way the lighting was, you really felt that you were watching something from the eighties, especially with the way the soundtrack was as well. Never mind watching something from the eighties. I felt like I was in the eighties the entire time. It was it was unbelievable. Of course, growing up in the eighties. I mean, it just took me right back there. It's almost like they found a thrift store in Maine and said, give me everything <laughs> you've got because we need this, this show to look authentically 80s. I mean, everything from the, from the woods, from the, from the way the town was structured, to the decor in the living room, to the wardrobe, everything. The old school D&D where they had their little binders that they made and they had their little monogrammed uh, letters of their name, the kids' names on there. Everything felt just so authentically 80s, it was unbelievable to me. This show really showed, also, speaking of Dungeons & Dragons, that being a dungeon master is truly a work of art, and it's a it lot is. of work. Because you had that one line of kids, like, it took two weeks to, to build this, you know, this quest and stuff yeah. like that. I'm like, this holy shit! This wasn't good enough! It was ten hours long! <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, just like the certain aspects that you mentioned, you know, this is set in Hickory, Indiana, so you get this you know, remember this Hoosiers thing. So you get that that small town area. Like, you're like this town can't be no more than like two thousand people. You yeah, know? and you've got the little Hawkins Middle sign up there, and and you know the gym look. Even the gym looks authentically eighties. It's it's absolutely un- unbelievable the way that they put this together. And it is one of those things where everybody knows everybody. And you see that with everything that happens with Nancy and everything that happens with the, with the buyer's kids, everybody knows everybody. And there, there is that sense of, remember we're talking about the 80s series. So there is that sense of being judgmental as well was very prevalent in this series. Right. You have that scene of course, where Nancy Wheeler is, who's of course played by Natalia Dyer is running and she sees that they graffitied the marquee on the theater, and you're just like, you see the looks of people walking past her, and you're just getting that mm-hmm. judgmental feel. You yeah. know, you're getting that, that look, and that's the thing, is that this show is centered a lot around, of course, you have Winona Ryder, and, and of course, you have David Harbour, who plays Hopper, but this is mostly centered around the kids, and I just want to say this. As somebody who in past reviews has been like, I just oh, want the yeah. kids to die... I love what they did with the kids here because not only did they give them stuff to do, but they made them smart. They didn't make them annoying. Yes. I You can see these kids and you can see them, especially myself, of like, okay, I identify with this kid. Here's why. Every kid served a certain purpose. Like there are times where Lucas, who of course played by Caleb McLaughlin – you know, where he's like, we gotta tell the, you know the adults, we gotta do this, and you're kind of like, no, you gotta keep the secret. But then there's a part of you where you're like, you know what? 
He does make some sense. Yes, exactly. And everybody brought their own unique perspective to that dynamic. And for me, it just hit home because that just reminded me of the friends that I had growing up. We had that kind of dynamic. And and to me, it's always been that small group of friends, you know, especially when you were growing up. Even if you had a lot of friends growing up, you always had that small, tight knit group of friends, right? right. That you would hang out with, do everything with, you know, the, the whole spit in your hand and shake. And that's like blood kind of thing, you know? So... It, it just brought me back to that aspect of, of my childhood as well. And, you know, riding bikes to a certain area where you're not supposed to be and just doing whatever the hell you want. Or, you know, playing D&D for seven, eight hours or in our case, Atari or Nintendo, stuff like that. So, I mean, it was just the group dynamic between these kids and the way that they just backed each other no matter what, even even when there was conflict, I thought was a really cool thing to put in there as well. Right, and what I loved about this too is, of course, I want to turn the spotlight to the adults here. Winona Ryder, oh. if she does not win an Emmy for Best Actress on television, I, there, there needs to be like a recount of some sort or yeah. something because every episode, you not only felt for her, but she delved more and more and more with each episode, pretty much even also with each scene, to becoming more of a broken person. Because, mm-hmm. you know, people are kind of like, remember, this is the 80s, so there wasn't a lot of helicopter parenting. So again, as James mentioned, you know, going on bike rides to places you weren't supposed to go and everything else. All the other adults, except for Hopper up until, you know, episode 5, really are like, oh, maybe he's gone. You know, maybe he just ran, you know, went to some store, he went somewhere, yeah, it was whatever. Yeah, laissez fair parenting, basically. Right, right. And with her, she's like, oh, my God, he's heaven taken somewhere. And then you see her, you know, with the Christmas lights and the painting mm-hmm. of the letters and everything else like that. So what I love about this, too, is just, I said, with the writing, they made her seem crazy, but they also made her make sense, where it wasn't like, oh, my God, this is crazy woman. It's like, you know, to the audience, this is a desperate mother because, you know, she's, you know, painting letters on her wallpaper, which was, when she started doing that, I'm like, that is smart. That was brilliant. That was absolutely brilliant. And that's the thing is that within her, her quote unquote craziness and kind of like, you know, unable to sit down and being on edge, they made her and gave her a little bit of sanity to that, to where some of her actions when she did appear crazy were like, Oh wow! What she did there was pretty smart in trying to contact her son. It was it's it was manic. It was desperate, but at the same time, that parental instinct kicks in, and you'll do anything you have to do for your child. When you, you will never, and she never stopped believing either. I mean, there was she had plenty of reasons not to. I mean, when you see the body, yeah, you know, you see the body that that has to do something to you. But she knew the minute details of that is not my son right and that made her not stop believing and then eventually yeah you got the sheriff to believe and then he started coming around and he was dealing with his own issues as well with his daughter that that passed away of cancer so i mean it was just unbelievable and the dynamics especially with him towards the end i'm just gonna i'm not just gonna say one owner rider i think a bunch of this cast deserves emmys in the show as well and in a year where game of thrones is now out of the emmys because of their scheduling we were talking about this last night. Other than Mr. Robot, is there anything else out there? Outlander, maybe? The only has thing... any performance is even close? The only thing, in terms of actor, and I'm not talking about actress, but in terms of actor that can really compete uh, with a show like this 
is, and this is not, this is going out of the comic book realm, this is a show billions on Showtime, because Paul Giamatti on there, and I can't think of the other guy's name, are really, really good on that, but that's, those are the only two guys, I think, who can really rival uh, a male actor who, if they were to get nominated for the role for Stranger Things. Yeah, because David Harbour was, was absolutely incredible. I mean, he's played the, you know, the typical douchebag right. um, uh, sheriff, you know, the kind of guy, I don't care, and, you know, he's been through stuff in his life. He did that in the beginning, but then, of course, you know, he turns that corner, and, and I think turning that corner, when you're playing any character, if you can turn a corner and make your character do a complete 180 the way he did, I think that that deserves some recognition. As a matter of fact, how about Millie Bobby Brown, who played Eleven, and she was fantastic. She was amazing, and what I loved about her is that the way that she became acclimated to the group of boys in the sense of, you know, they didn't look at her as, oh, this is a girl kind of thing. They looked at her as, this is a mysterious person. You know, why is she here? And they see her do all this telekinetic stuff, and you're like, Wow, like like Millie Bobby Brown. I don't know how old she is she's in real life. She's, she's 12. She's 12, yeah. Okay, so she's 12 years old, and to be able to display that much emotion and even pain in certain scenes as a 12-year-old is amazing. Absolutely. And, like, if you skip towards the end, again, spoiler-filled here, people, you skip towards the end when she turns around and says, goodbye, Mike, I, I about lost it. And speaking of David Harbour, to go back to him, of course, you know, he plays Jim Hopper, the sheriff. When he's pounding on the chest oh, God. of Will, Kill and him. and they're showing flashbacks of his daughter who had cancer mm. dying, and they're split between and him. Back and forth, and back, back and oh, forth, yeah. Oh, I, 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 I was starting to tear up, man. I'm like, I'm not crying. I'm not crying. I know. I, I, know, I almost can't talk about it. It's just the the edit again, everything technically with the show was beautiful from the cinematography to the editing because and and this is what I want to talk about real quick too, when you have a guy like Hopper, as you mentioned, you know, he was kinda like at first this douchebag who was a pill popper and stuff like that. Him turning around pulling a one eighty and believing Winona Ryder and everything that's going on with the government and everything else like that. Because it's set in Hickory, which you know is a small town in Indiana, it really felt like that one guy turning or that one person turning and believing them, you know, everything from him to Nancy and everybody else, it felt like an entire s- small town believed, you know? Even right, if it was only it, like five of them, it was like – right. It, was, it felt like a small town. It just seemed like we came across so few people that gave a damn – Throughout, like the the science teacher that did the ham radio with them, he cared. The sheriff ended up caring. Of course, Will's mom cared. Mike's mom, not so much. She was kind of on the outside for the most part, and she kind of made a turn around too. The dad, I wanted to kick the dad in the nuts almost the entire show. <laughs> well, it's like, wake up, you dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, come on, wanna... do you care at all? Come on, dude. And, and I just want to, there's a, there's a person we haven't mentioned yet who I think did a brilliant job too. And of course, that's Matthew Modine, who was Dr. Martin Brenner. Yes. Who was the head of you know this whole experimentation and you know this whole upside down world that we got to see and everything else and and when I saw the whole upside down world I got a little Guillermo del Toro feel with that mm-hmm. uh, somebody who's watched a lot of his films and loves him a lot in terms of what his, he does for his work uh, the way and especially the way things were shot but the way Matthew Modine plays off as you know he's a bad guy but there's certain parts where you look at him and you're like. Could he 
just be misunderstood because his intentions are good. He's just misunderstood by public you know, people in the public. I think and, he cared about Eleven. Yeah. I mean, I really do, but I think it was in a, a twisted way where he cared about her, but he didn't understand what he was doing was, like, killing her. Right, and I think that it was he knew, you know, she had these powers, and he knew there was this whole upside-down worlds, mm-hmm. and he saw her, I think, as more of a key to unlocking mysteries in the world itself yes, yes. and other dimensions, and that's how he saw her. And so when you see him, and even when he was when he was killed off, uh, I looked, I wasn't, like, cheering. I was like, yeah, I'm glad that son of a bitch got it, you know? I looked at him like, oh, I don't know how, I, I feel indifferent about that. Because Party feels like he had more secrets to tell. And then when he dies, it's like, well, what just died with him? Right. That's the way I felt. I was like, okay, you know, you, you kind of wanted him to die, I guess, because of everything that he put everyone through. Because it, at the end of the day, I guess it was his fault. But at the same time, you're like, okay, now what are we not going to learn because he's dead? It, there's that frustration as a viewer that you get like, oh, you know, I wanted him to go, but all the things that he must have known who could have told us about this world or how this even happened, that now we're not going to know unless there's some sort of lost type thing where they've got reel-to-reels somewhere where they recorded all of these training videos and stuff. And unless we've got that, now we're not going to know. And based on the ending, that could end up being important. And that's what I want to get to is the ending because when it was getting towards, I think it was starting to wrap up nicely, and I'm watching, I'm sitting on my couch, and I'm thinking to myself, Okay, season two. What can they do for season two? Like, will they do like a true detective thing where it's a new cast every season and a new, maybe a new town, or maybe it's the same town, which is a different thing, phenomenon going on. And then you see, <laughs> you see the scene, which I, I know this is a spoiler film, but I, I don't want to spoil this. Okay. We get to the scene in the bathroom. It's something and, to do with Will, we can say that. Yeah. And. Then, when that happens, I'm sitting there like, okay, carry out the same characters for season two, like, like because you have me. You, you hear, build on this. You have something here to build on. You know, don't go away. Don't go to another city or town or whatever. Stay right here in this town of Hickory with these people, these kids, and these families, because there's a little bit more at play here. I will say this. I, I, that had me too, but they had me at Egos. <laughs> yeah they had me at egos it was it was the same thing in the finale if you've seen you know exactly what i'm talking about you had me with egos so i mean i was just and then just like you were saying you i think you posted this on on uh at uh, merc with one arm on twitter you were saying i'm already working out scenarios for season two i'm like that's the first thing i did the second i yep. stopped watching it, i was like <laughs> okay here we go and that's one of the reasons why you know we talk about how this has been so active on social media that's one of the reasons why this show is still everywhere on facebook and twitter because everybody wants to know okay what the hell are they gonna do not because you don't you don't think they have content but because there's so much and so many things that they could do well not just that but you want to talk about you know a problem that a lot of things have of course you people mention is loose ends and it's like how are they gonna tie these up loose set these loose ends up what do they why do they leave them open well now we know why they left certain loose ends open you know what i'm saying because it's like they work. The loose ends they left open in the end work, especially if they're go- when they're going to go into season two. And I'm just like, really, really excited for this. And again, it's just 
when you're thinking of ideas for like, well, what could this mean? And that's the point of a great show. That's how you know it's a great show. When you are left with questions of, well, what could this mean? And you're looking into a mystery and you end up pulling out your whiteboard and you're drawing out these equations. You're like, okay, you know, plot synopsis, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. Like, well, what can they do? And it's just an amazing amazing thing that they did especially you know when next thing you know you're drawing egos on the board and you're like okay egos plus box equals what right, times exactly. monster with flower vagina for a face you know what can you know, what <laughs> how if, many how many chicken wings were in the tupperware again that might be right, important that right. might be important go back and count that might that might be that might be a death Right. So you're like analyzing every small thing, you know, and uh, again, it's just all these characters you felt for the writing was great. Technically, it was an amazing show. And I just got to say that the soundtrack is one of the best soundtracks oh, I've heard in a show. The theme really made it feel like, OK, this is a show that's released in 2016, but it could also feel like it's been released in like 1983 because of the way it looked where it was grainy and it wasn't clean. You know, it had that eerie kind of you know have you ever seen the movie it follows it has that kind of music that people know from the 80s and those types of of suspense and horror and sci-fi films and i'm glad that it wasn't before we get to our ratings i'm glad that it wasn't another alien comes down and you know the kids here's the kids they're gonna try to save it from the government everything else like that yeah. it was here is a human being at least we think it's a human being who has these telekinetic powers and is like pretty much a key to this other world. And, you know, I want to know in season two, how does this whole upside down thing, you know, when you see the, these openings, you know, how they say, you know, these are these certain openings or anything like that. Like, how do they form? I want to know the science right. behind that. Exactly. And how about this as well? There was 11. What happened to the other 10? Right. Obviously, if there's an 11, there were 10 others. So... What happened to those 10? What's their story? Are we going to get anything about that as well? Like I said, we could sit here probably for another 20 minutes just discussing scenarios and everything that could go on. That's why I don't think this show's going away on social media anytime no. soon. And there's a reason that there was uh, reports coming out. I mean, believe what you want to believe about these reports, but saying that uh, Stranger Things has outpaced the Marvel shows on Netflix uh, in the early going as well. And, and there's a reason for that because of these things. And it's not that Daredevil wasn't great and it wasn't active on social media or Jessica Jones or even when Luke Cage when that comes out next month. But for some reason, this show, because of all the things that it's done, is just making people talk. And that is the that is what Netflix has been able to do since they started original programming. Finding these shows that will make people keep talking long after they've been released exactly and with that let's give our ratings for this and i'll go first this is a show again as i said before technically sound the writing as well my hat is off to the duffer brothers who just really really captivated everything and especially in a time where netflix is you know even though it's still you know 10 bucks a month where people are kind of like okay netflix you're kind of gearing less towards these mainstream movies and TV shows going more towards original programming. Give me something here to warrant paying you money each month for, for content. And they said, you know what? We got something perfect from Duffer Brothers. It's called Stranger Things. You're going to love it. And it's going to be a huge phenomenon on social media. And it is. I know we did it last week with Suicide Squad, but I'm going to do it again. This is 10 out of 10 strands of Christmas lights. I gotta be honest, man. I mean, this is a story of, of sacrifice. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of a parent that'll do anything that they have to do 
for their son, of friends that will do anything that they have to do to keep their core group together like brothers. It's a story about, you know, coming of age in a lot of ways, too. And this is the most I've ever traveled back in time without a DeLorean or Elton John's lawn chair from Time Machine movies. So, I gotta be honest, man. I'm gonna go the same exact route that you did, and I'm gonna give this 10 raw egos out of 10. Wow, I think this is actually the first time we've had back-to-back shows where we've given well, things 10 out of 10. I mean, just argue with us then. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, find a flaw and argue it, because I didn't find one. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't find any at all. That's going to do it for our review of Stranger Things from Netflix. Come up next, we have a whole bevy of nerd news we're going to dive into. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy Podcasts come up next. Hey listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Noble, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, time we go around the internet and see what's trending, because it's time for what, James? Nerd News! And a while back, we talked about how CW was leaving Hulu. All their shows are going to be going straight to Netflix. So Hulu is pretty much kind of barren in a little bit when it comes to certain comic book properties. Pretty much the only ones they would have after the move by CW is like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Well, it was announced this week that, hey, Marvel's teaming up with Hulu again, but this time the Runaways are coming to Hulu as a live-action series. Yeah, and finally we get Hulu to get a comic book property as a, I guess you could call regular series. And of course, if you don't know a whole lot about The Runaways, basically follows a group of six teenagers that are based in the Marvel Universe, and they find out that their parents are members of a supervillain group called the Pride, and then they decide, you know, they're not safe at their home anymore, so they kind of go on the run. Hence, Runaways. And, of course, by the way, if you forget, this was created by the Brian K. Vaughn of Saga fame and a whole bunch of other stuff, too. So, what do you think, Nick? I mean, to me personally, I don't know a whole lot about the Runaways, so I guess this would be kind of good for me. How do you feel about this? Again, I don't know much about The Runaways. I didn't read the series. I do know, though, whenever I see Brian K. Vaughn's name attached to it, uh, it's going to be good in terms of the writing. Mm-hmm. My only wish was that Vaughn was actually like the showrunner for it, or he was one of the writers, like the lead writer for this, or at least yeah. a producer, yeah. because that would be like, okay, they got Brian K. Vaughn in there. I know he's a busy dude, but it's like you get you know this guy in there to at least be – you know, somebody who can oversee and make sure it's done properly. I look at this show on Hulu. I think it's a great move for Hulu. I think that, you know, now that DC is pretty much is mostly packed up and left and is going to be leaving in the fall, that, you know, Marvel stepped in and says, hey, we'll take this spot and we'll create something new. And a lot of people are excited about this. Again, I think that the reason why I'm not as excited about this because I haven't read it, so I don't really know what's right. really to expect of it other than Brian K. Vaughn wrote it. And honestly, I mean, they have spread these kids out in other facets of the Marvel Universe as well. So, I mean, I- I've caught glimpses of some of them, but not to- like together as runaways. I mean, I know they've been a part of, of a big arc uh, recently as well, but I mean... Vaughn hasn't even been a part of the Runaways since 2007, so you'd be talking about almost a 10-year gap. Of course, you know, it's like riding a bike, especially when you create this, you know, I'm sure that he could jump right in. So I'm kind of with you. I wish that he'd be involved somehow. I mean, I I know that they've got some good people involved. They've got Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage. They're going to be the showrunners for the series. And, you know, Jeff Loeb's always going to have a hand in it, stuff like that. And 
Marvel TV's gotten better, and I think this will be good for Hulu. I think it'll attract a younger audience, but I just worry that a lot of people, even that might be a little bit familiar with The Runaways, will see that Marvel name and have certain expectations about the series going in and, and find out that it's not really what they're expecting. You know what I mean? Right. I think that the big fear of this, I look at to to not compare it to a DC show in terms of quality and stuff like that, but you look at a show like Gotham, where even though it's going to, what, third season, people are kind of like, I want Batman. This needs to be a Batman show. With the Runaways, I fear this is a show about kids who ran away from, you know, this, these evil parents why want this? You know, I want Iron Man to show up. I want this to show up. Yeah, they're going to want those cameos, even from the TV characters, probably. Exactly. And again, it's going to be kind of like, well, how do you tile those in? And do you? And do you just do it in name only like S.H.I.E.L.D. does it? Mm-hmm. It's, again, opening up a certain can of worms that we can't really digest fully until the show actually premieres. But speaking of showrunners, James, you know, one of the shows we were looking forward to very much so was, of course, Powerless from NBC. Now, Deadline, though, reported this week that Ben Queen, who, of course, is the show's creator and showrunner, has left the project due to creative differences. And that's kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, this is a series that, you know, they were just at SDCC. I, I think they had a screening there at the time. I can't really remember because, you know, it was San Diego Comic-Con and there was a thousand things that happened. Right. But... I mean, this is a show I think a lot of us were really excited about because, again, it was one of those things where you go out kind of outside of the norm of the regular superhero show, and it would be a comedy. It would be kind of DC's first venture fully into comedy, and then the guy that creates the show just sort of leaves. I don't think that's a good thing. I mean, when you've got a person that creates this, and then they leave the show for creative differences, right? what, what kind of a show are we going to get now? And I don't want to see, I've been seeing people say, well, what about the movie like Ant-Man where that had, you know, multiple directors and stuff like that? Ant-Man was already a thing. Yeah, they you know? this guy didn't create Ant-Man. Yeah, they didn't create <laughs> no. Ant-Man. It was this new, you know, thing. You know, the show was created by the showrunner. And the thing is, is that this happens a few weeks before production was supposed to start. I believe it was supposed to air, what, like around January? like January 2nd, yep. Yeah. January 2nd. And there ain't no way in hell they're nope. going to make that January 2nd date now. Nope. And this... they've already delayed production, too, obviously. So Right. And so this is just, again, listen, we don't know what he wanted to do with the show. Maybe, who knows? And the thing is, people have to, in a certain sense, when you talk about showrunners leaving, people can't be like, oh, well, the studio screwed him over. The studio wanted too much control. Hey, Maybe there was times where he wanted to do certain things and they felt like NBC did where they're like, yeah, we don't think that's going to work. Or that doesn't make much sense. You know, so it's a, it's a, you got to look at it from both angles. But right, again, exactly. But again, when you have the show or like the guy who created the show leave weeks before, not like months where it's OK, we get somebody else in and we can work this thing out. Weeks, like this yeah. was a shoot. I think like in a few, like two or three weeks or whatever, start and you're production. Fully cast and yes! everything. I mean, everything's already kind of in motion. I'm Not assuming they've, they've probably got scripts past pilot the pilot episode stage that they're getting ready to shoot for as well. So it's not like they're not probably a few episodes in, at least writing wise. I know before they start production, so. I mean, it's a little scary, but at the same time, we have to be careful here, like you said, because that just because this is happening doesn't mean the show's not going to be good. Right, and this is also a show that had also a trailer. Like, they showed right. stuff from it. Now, here's the thing. Again, we don't know how far along the scripts mentioned were, you know, were as you mentioned, you know, how well, they have a whole season's worth of shows written. Cool. 
But again, that's a dangerous thing because even if the whole season was written out, you have a precedent set by one showrunner for the first season. Then you go into season two with a different showrunner. Things can change drastically from the right. tone to how it's shot to everything. And it's just, again, could become a whole mold mess. With what would happen with the Muppets? On ABC, yeah. where they, it was a certain way when the show started, and then there was a change. I think it was right around mid-season, and then but when can you I tell came you back, something? you're like, uh, what just happened? But can I tell you something, though? When they did that change, I felt like there really wasn't much of a change done. Even though I said, oh, we're changing the way the show is. It was still stylized like The Office, and that's why it led to it getting canceled. I know, but it was still kind of weird because it almost took more of a serious vibe right. in the second half of the season. And I think that's one of the things that tanked it. It's like, wasn't this supposed to be funny? Because it was, the first few episodes at least. So I, I just, th- I think you're right. I think it's going to be interesting to see how they progress. I'm sure they've, I don't think they've got the whole season written out. I think they probably have a couple of episodes written. But storyboarding, that's different. Remember that too. You st- probably storyboarded this out, or at least outlined it out much further. So... Is this a back to the drawing board, literally kind of situation, or we really don't know what to expect at this point? I don't think we know what to expect at this point because we don't know how far the show has been written out. Again, if it's been written out for half a season, then you have a storyboard for the other half of the season. You know, it's it's weird. We're in the we're there's not enough information out right now to where I think we can get a definite answer. And I think we have to see, you know, that transition from season one, even if it gets to season two, we have to see how it transitions. And sometimes when it comes to show running, you can see a certain point where somebody else took over. So you got to see, you know. Right, exactly. And, and who do you think these people that wrote this were hired by, by the way? Right. <laughs> you know, by the guy that's not there anymore. Right, exactly. But speaking of tanking, James, you mentioned the word tanking. And a company that's been tanking for a long fucking time recently is Konami. Now, they recently mentioned, hey, we have a new Metal Gear game coming out called Metal Gear Survive. You know, and here's the thing. It's the first Metal Gear game since Hideo Kojima left. But holy shit, Konami, really? Like, you're going to take everything that was great about the Metal Gear franchise and say, you know, we're going to make the first game after Hideo Kojima a four-person co-op survival zombie game. Yeah! Uh, Here's the deal, man. Honestly. Zombies again... And Wormhole, I mean, I get it, fine. Do it, the Wormhole, and then you've got, you know, pieces of the of the base there. What the hell is the base called? Mother Base? Suck through the Wormhole and go get them kind of thing. And, I, man, I don't know. I mean, IGN reported this, and it just seems so unoriginal and stupid to me. I mean, this, and, is, this is what you're going to do at GamesCon, too? I mean, come on. And not to mention, oh, it's zombies. They look like they have, like, red glowing dicks going from their foreheads. It's like they're unicorn zombies? What are they? like? To me, it's just uh, crystalline zombies. And and I think that they said that one of the quotes in here was they were, they're not being called zombies, they're called biological threats. Oh, Christ. Yeah. Yeah, no wonder, because you know why? Everybody's doing zombies. What were there, 60 zombies-themed games at E3? Yeah. I mean, and and now at Gamescom, this is your big reveal as another zombie game set. Oh, well, well, one of the big bosses will probably be a Metal Gear. Does it matter at that point? And that's the thing is that this is why I want to talk. This is why I hate Konami right now. Not just with all the shit they did, how they treated their employees, all that horror story stuff that came out over the past couple of years. But I'm going to say this right now. The Phantom Pain, I did not like that game at all. 
there was a lot of that that came out that was cut, like in terms of story. I felt that it just it wasn't fun. I didn't enjoy playing it. And I know probably people saying, "Oh, you're crazy." It's my opinion. I didn't like the game. It's, you know, I didn't like it. Coming, you know, I love Snake Eater. I love Sons of Liberty. You know, and the, of course the original Metal Gear. But come on, man, when you're doing this stuff. I watched this trailer and I was laughing because it was better than crying. Man, I mean, obviously this isn't a surprise because you knew that they were going to do another one. Just because Kojima left doesn't right. mean they were going to stop making Metal Gear games. But what they should have done is at least try and come up with an original idea. How about that? Let's come up with some sort of an original idea. And they said something to, along the lines of, oh, well, this. You know, picks up right where Gears 5 left off, Metal Gear Solid 5 left off. Uh, no. No, it doesn't. You can no. say it does. It does not. Well, all it, the people that weren't killed in that game are going to be back for this game. That doesn't matter. Right, and mind you, it's not it's not set after Metal Gear Solid 5, The Phantom Pains. It's set after Ground Zeroes, which came before Phantom Pain. Right, and it's funny because if you notice pretty much everything that they were saying about this game... They all they referred back to Metal Gear Solid Five every time. Yeah, they referred back. Well, from Metal Gear Metal Gear Solid Five, we go to this, and from Metal Metal Gear Solid Five, we go to this. Uh, why do you keep bringing up the old game if you're trying to promote a new game? Shouldn't not you be focusing that. on the new thing? Not only that, but trying to distance yourself from Hideo Kojima. <laughs> so we're trying to move away from this guy. By mentioning the last thing he did, by the even, way, though, even though we took his name off the box and everything else like that and fucked him over. By the way, his new game kind of looks like it's going to be a survival-style game, too. So way to go ahead and go that route and just try and copy him completely out the door. And right. Not as well. Well done. Right, exactly. I mean, seriously, Konami can go fuck themselves with a spike cactus Like Here's, at this point. I'm not even mad, though, really. I mean, it's just one of those things where... I'm not. I, 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 I can't even I, say I'm, that because I'm, it's sad to me. I, and that's what it is. It's sad because this is a company who, like, back when I was going to play, you know, they made games like Turtles in Time and all those other great yeah, games, and you know? Con, and the, the Contra and Life Force yes. series were, were them from and the it, Nintendo days. And, and it's, just, it's just fallen so hard to where they want to make their little, you know, pachinko machines and stuff like that, you know, and, and they've already licensed out the Metal Gear name and my, for those. So my thing is... It's sad because now Konami has become this company that was once revered by the video game industry and its fans and great made some great AAA games. But now it's fallen to the point where they're just milking and cashing the name, not so much the product of their games. They wouldn't be the first ones. Right, I know that, but they're doing it in the worst way possible. And this is also leading to, it's like, you know what makes... Rockstar's Grand Theft Auto game is so great. It's the fact that we get one like every four to five years. Now with Metal Gear, we're looks like we're gonna get a new one every fucking year. And yeah, it, and then they set it in a different place too, though with the Grand Theft Auto games. They don't reset, but they give you a different setting, different story every time. Exactly. You know, so it's not the same exact thing. And the reason I'm not mad, I know a lot of people are mad. I've seen a lot of Twitter stuff about Konami. Hey, I'm not happy with them either. But you know what, guys? First of all. And I'm just going to drop some sad truth right now. So many of you that are bitching on Twitter are going to buy the game anyway. So yep. you're part of the problem, okay? Yell at me if you want. You know I'm right. The second thing is, and this is total 180 from what I just said, you know how many other options there are right now for you to play games? You know how many other great games are out there just from E3 alone? We could sit here for 15 minutes 
Literally, just listing games we that are well, better options. Well, we kind of did that during our E3 coverage. Right, exactly. So the fact that you're bitching and so angry about this, who cares? Just stop talking about them. Stop talking about them entirely. Like, the only way we're going to get the Kardashians to go away is if we stop talking about them. Because then nobody will be talking about them anymore and they'll just fade off into the sunset. You want Konami to go away and stop making uh, lousy games? Stop talking about but them. But see, in a sense, I'll, I'll, I just want to... Play. I don't know if I want to call it devil's advocate, but I'll just kind of stand up for the fans in general a little bit by saying, by talking about this though, you're shedding more of a light on how bad they really are, which is going to cause more pressure on them to possibly sell or, but I feel or like close we did that or whatever. I feel like we did that already. When, when Kojima left, I think everything was brought into the light. We did that already. Now at this point, we're just beating the same horse that we were beating before. Just but, let them suck. But again, it's just one of those things where we're saying, oh, we're not going to just head towards more, more uh, mobile and pachinko machines. Like, we're still going to make console games. Like, just, just go away, Konami. Just just go away. Yeah, but you know how the old saying goes, ignore it and it'll go away. Yeah, well, speaking of something that's been, I guess you can say ignored for a long time, at least since the 80s, uh, has been Monster Squad. Now, there's been people who have said, I've watched, you know, I've watched this when I was growing up and I liked it. I've never seen Monster Squad, to be honest. It's been a long time, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm older than you are. It's been a long time. It's been 30 years since it was made. Yeah. So I was probably, I mean, I didn't see it when it first came out because I would have been too young. Man, I might have been 10 it's when like, I saw it for the first time. You can rent it on YouTube for like three bucks. Yeah, so I mean, I, I know of it. I, and I don't remember it vividly. I do remember it, though. And the reason why we're talking about Monster Squad is because Shane Black, who of course is you know doing another Predator movie, has said, "Hey, working on Predator kind of makes me want to do a Monster Squad sequel." So I know we kind of talked about this recently. Whenever, at least you know, in terms of whenever there's a sequel that's made X amount of years after the original, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen with that. I would much rather see. I know we were not fans of like, oh, why are you always rebooting stuff? Honestly, it's been long enough. I could see a reboot for Monster Squad. I think that they could do it and how it makes sense. And I know that he was talking to the, to IGN about this, and I think they've kind of felt the same way. You know, you revisit this when they're adults now, if you go that angle. Yeah. You revisit this when they're adults, and maybe something happens, and maybe they have to come back. It was almost like kind of what you felt like you wanted to see them do with Ghostbusters. Right. Well, also, in a sense, if you're going to go that route from, like, you know, where in the 80s they were young and now they're older... It's kind of like the movie It. Right, and I know that Shane Black was talking about that, too, yeah. Right, and it's like, you know, where, of course, half of the movie they're young and the other half they're older, you know, people. Uh, I would like, you know, as someone who likes the old Universal Monster movies, I would not mind seeing a new Monster Squad. Because the thing is, though, you know, you watch the trailer and people say, well, the movie, you know, oh, it was bad. It was like, it was meant to be. It was meant to be campy. It was right. the 80s. In the 80s, everything was cheesy and campy. It had to be like saying, man, the naked gun was awful. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, it's supposed to be that way. I mean, it's not. I'm, I'm not saying it was supposed to be a bad movie, but it's supposed to be a cheesy, like you said, campy movie. That would be like, again, the Batman show from the 60s. Oh, that was a terrible representation of Batman. Uh, it was the 60s, and it was made for specific type of audience and reason. Everybody was on marijuana and other drugs during that time. It was I the mean, 60s. Just relax a little bit. It's okay for something to just be... Like the comic that you re- reviewed early in the show, Spawn Kills Everyone. It's okay to be sat- satirical. I mean, it was, again, it was... A, again. 
It was the 60s of Batman. Commissioner Gorham probably lit a spliff with his fucking bat signal. I'm just saying the phone was a glowing red phone. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there are certain... I mean, but, but seriously, man. I mean, this is okay. I mean, it, do, do we have to have this? Absolutely not. But if it gets made, does it have a chance to be, you know, what the fans, the original fans of it want it to be? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, but there's no danger here, though. That's the other thing. It's not like we're doing, like, doing Blade Runner again or talking about doing a Beetlejuice movie all these years later. This is Monster Squad. Most people... Don't remember the original anyway. Certainly nobody from, you know, even your generation. I mean, we're 10 years apart right. from your generation. How many of you guys know about Monster Squad? Right. If they made another one, you have no frame of reference. <laughs> I was I was born in 88, so this movie was only like three, Before four years born. old. Yes. Yeah. So come on, man. And and that's okay because you watch, you, you like a lot of people your age. I can be that old man. We'll go back and watch movies from the 80s and stuff like that, or even the 70s, and appreciate them and like them for what they are. So it's not like you never see them, but you have no frame of reference. This is not from your era. So if you do this movie now, you can capture a new audience, maybe. And you know what? There's not a whole lot of this kind of stuff being done right now in the movies. Exactly. That's going to do it for this week in Nerd News. But coming up next, we have the creative team behind Boom Studios' Calling of Skull Island coming on the show to talk about the new six-part series. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy coming up next. Hey, my name is Rafael Albuquerque, and you are listening to Down Nerdy Podcast. Well, you know, Nick and I are always talking about our favorite characters, and who doesn't love King Kong? And, you know, we're so excited for Kong Skull Island to come in theaters, but you may or may not have known that it has already come to comic books from Boom Studios. As a matter of fact, we have the artist for Kong Skull Island with us right now, Carlos Magno. Carlos, we're so excited to have you on, and we were talking off the air a little bit about your love of the character, so why don't you talk about how you got on this project and how much you love the King Kong character? I have so much luck because I was working on so many projects with Boom Studios. Planet of the Apes, uh, Robocop, Deathmatch, Lantern City, and I saw I spent a lot of time working this amazing project. And uh, one day, uh, Daphne Playban uh, called me and said, Carlos, do you like King Kong? Yeah, and I said, you got to be kidding. <laughs> I love King Kong. Come on. I, I remember when I was just a kid, 10 years old, watching TV. Of course, and when I was a kid, I didn't have video recorder and uh, anything. And I had no full-color TV at the time. My memory came back in the past, and I discovered my love about King Kong, and I love King Kong. And when I come aboard, I came aboard to King Kong, it was a dream come true, you know? When I was drawing King Kong, I started to realize, you know, this is unbelievable. This, this is not happening. This is a dream come true, and uh, that was amazing because... Daphne and uh, and uh, whole people from Boon Studios trust me to do this uh, an amazing book. And Carlos, in the beginning of issue two, it contains a conflict between Kong and a creature. So during those moments of conflict, what's the most important thing you want to, as an artist, capture about both of them when they're you know in mid conflict? I think I should be uh, respectful, uh, respectful with the memory of the people. You know, it's very hard because um, the, if you, the old people will start to see the comic books, it will be very, very hard, you know, because I really want to 
to see the the, the old the old guys, to see the comic book, and um, uh, to see that the Carlos Magno was respectful with the comic that I have in my mind, you know. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, speaking about being respectful to the to to the older fans and people that are big fans of King Kong, like yourself, when you first got signed on to this project and you and James were doing this. Was there any specific thing that you looked at as an artist and thinking, man, we have to get this right for the fans? Is there, is there something you tended to focus on more with that? I really want to to put my style. I think that's the important thing in the book. I really want to put my style in the, in the, in the Kong. You know, everybody uh, trusted in my work in the Planet of the Apes. Uh, despite it's very similar, you know, sometimes um, you have to consider this is another kind of character. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Kong is a very, very unique and a very complex kind of character. I really want to show my res- my respect about Kong, and despite despite the the, the 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 Kong itself, I really want to to make the people see how loved is this creature. This uh, creature. Oh, exactly, and that's why one thing I wanted to ask you about is in this series, you feel that relationship between the humans and the Kong themselves. So, as an artist, how do you try to to capture that emotion onto the page? Well, James and I uh, are making a very complex kind of comic book because um, there is a, a lot of more relationship between the, the 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 characters, the human characters. And the Kong, the Kong, there is a kind of uh, the, the creature that is very respectful uh, by this um, by these people uh, in this island, and um, there is more interaction between these uh, these two uh, kind of characters. Do you remember when the the movies from the thirties, uh, when the Kong is just stop motion creature? You know, there was no emotion. It's uh, just roar and just roar and roar and roar, and nobody has nobody have the love about the creature, you know. In the comic book, it's different. The comic book, they love the creature. They uh, consider uh, the creature as a god, you know, and not this kind of a god you have to be feared, you know, but to be loved. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it seems like the female characters tend to treat the Kong a little bit better than the male characters in the story, at least in the first couple of issues. And you can see that kind of relationship building. And we all know from the classic King Kong movies, this interaction with female characters. So do you think the Kong tend to gravitate towards women more than men? Well, I don't know. Maybe because uh, there is uh, the trainers uh, on on our comic book. They're both men and women, women, and uh, there is uh, as uh, the, the same works in the, the, the King Kong, because the King Kong is not male character, just could be a female character, you know, and uh, sometimes the relationship between these two kind of creatures it's very similar. They not consider the King Kong as an a- animal, just consider. Um, as another part of the family, I suppose to say, you know, and uh, in, as a god, as I said before. 
Going back to the 1930s movie, as you mentioned earlier, when Kong is shown on stage, you have that gasp reaction from people. A lot of that came from fear, but in the series, we're seeing a lot of trust between Kong himself and the humans. So how much of that relationship in this series is based on trust between both Kong and human? I, th- I think it's completely, uh, because of deer, it's a, it's a kind of part of the family. And uh, Kong is a kind of creature that really wants to, uh, everybody wants to love and not to be, to, to get feared. Carlos, one thing that I love that you and James are doing is there was a part in issue two where you talk about how we as humans kind of distract ourselves with certain things to keep us from focusing on the chaos around us. Why do you feel like it was important to add that into this book? Because I think it's a really big part of the story. I think we have to make this clear how the school island has the Kong. Because the school island didn't have the Kong. You know? There's another kind of creatures. There is a lot of dinosaurs. Another kind of creatures, very smart creatures and very dumb kind of creatures. But the Kong, there is no Kong in this island. And I think it is important to tell the people, to tell the readers, that how the Kongs go to the island. You know, I think this is the main, uh, main storyline of, uh, of this comic book, and to say how the people uh, made the huge wall, for example or how the Kong get, get in in the island. I think it is the main point in the story. And, of course, the main relationship between the human and the Kong. While working on Kong Skull Island, what are some things you've not only learned about yourself as an artist, but your craft as well? First thing, I, I love to work with apes. You know, I really love to work with apes. And so, uh, as I said before, as I dream come true, there is, there is a lot of things... And this comic book, I really work to. I really like to work with. For example, the the people, you know, there is a, a lot of kind of people. There is a lot of kind of Kong, and um, the the school island itself, dinosaurs. I love dinosaurs. To work in dinosaurs, and uh, there is uh, not precisely to have to copy the dinosaurs like Jurassic Park, for example, but uh, to work. In a very unique kind of dinosaurs, it's very monstrous. You know, it's not. Uh, I, I I don't have to follow the design of the dinosaurs itself, but uh, it was great to work on it. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, Nick and I were talking about how when we saw the trailer for the new movie Kong Skull Island is going to be coming out. We were actually so happy that we were able to read your comic first because it kind of made us appreciate what we were seeing a little bit more. So, Carlos. After the last issue of this series comes out, and I know that that's a long way away, but after the last issue of this series comes out, what do you hope readers will get out of your story? I just want the people, the readers, love my artwork first, of course, and love the James script, you know, because this is great, and love the story, you know, because it's a very unique kind of a story, you know. I think it's very original. And um, I think uh, James is given uh, his soul on this book. It's very it's that because it's amazing, and uh, the, we are telling a very unique kind of a story because you know uh, King Kong is very familiar 
to everybody. Everybody knows the story of Kong, uh, about the, um, that huge wall, the school of Ireland, and um, the whole myth around Kong. But what they don't know, the people they don't know, what it was the story before the school of Ireland. And that is great. We're telling this story. You know, that, this, definitely this is great. And we can't wait to read the rest of it. Kong Skull Island issues one and two are available now. Issue three is going to be available in September. And Carlos, we're loving your work. It's Carlos Magno of Kong of Skull Island from Boom Studios. Thanks so much for talking to us this week. Okay, thank you very much. Well, you just heard us talk to artist of Kong Skull Island, Carlos Magno. So why not make it a double header and talk to the writer as well, James Asmus. James, how you doing, man? Very well, very well, and very happy to uh, speak with you guys. Absolutely, man. Now, I know you've said in other interviews before how excited you were to take on this project with a major name like King Kong. I had probably be a few nerves as well. So what were some of the main things that you wanted to focus on for the fans and say, we have to get this right? Obviously, you want to find your moments of gigantic, bestial action. You know what I mean? Like, you really want... <laughs> The full force of an incredible, powerful animal fighting to the death with formidable, monstrous beasts. Uh, in this case, we're really going hard against the uh, dinosaur creatures of Skull Island in particular. Also, I think what has made Kong so resonant and enduring is also what a potent metaphor Kong's throughout stories end up being for the kind of edge of humanity that presses up against animal nature and the sort of uh, precarious divide between us and our animal sides and more sophisticated animals and maybe their emotionality that we're uncomfortable recognizing uh, in the animal kingdom. So I think finding potent moments to play on the divide between humanity and the uh, Kong was was just as important to me in the kind of um, building of the story. James, one of the main strengths of this series is the relationship between the humans and the Kongs. To you, what's the most important factor of that relationship in both terms of substance and believability? That's a super interesting question. The um, believability in and of itself with like all things comic book when you're dealing with kind of heightened realities and elements outside of our, our world. It's always just kind of a gut balance that you have to strike. You have to find moments of believable response to mm -hmm. something that seems uh, outside of our world or, or to find a parallel situation you can think of um, and, and try and capture an emotional truth in this different setting. But I, I also sort of think uh, in terms of the nature of their relationship, kind of going back to what I was saying about this weird discomfort we feel about recognizing like, thoughtfulness and emotional life in certain animals in, in the real world. Um, and also in the kind of impulsive savagery that sometimes, sometimes comes out of people. Uh, those are both things I think a lot of humans are really uncomfortable with. <laughs> and so, oh, yeah. um, so to look at a spectrum of responses in the humans to how they treat the Kong in, in a way that kind of speaks to how a lot of people feel about that divide. And, and, and I should also note, I'm saying this not as someone who eats meat. Like, there's not... Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I should just warn people on both sides of, uh, of that 
that issue. Like, uh, I'm not going to end up in in a, a sort of um, super uh, animal rights shut down Sea World sort of screed. Uh, but I'm fine with that too. You know, what I mean, it's just um, uh, I I'm more so exploring it than I am coming to it with a, a distinct agenda. You know, watching that this society is still at least in the moment we're watching, and this is a prequel to the kind of famous original King Kong story. Watching kind of the origins of the Kong species and uh, on Skull Island and taking a step earlier to to what was part of um, original Kong creator and the subsequent stories his family uh, have done kind of fleshed out some of this backstory and I found a moment in what they created that I thought was really interesting. But they had set up that the natives we see on the island originally lived on a different island and they raised the Kong there through like breeding science and um, kind of built them up to be these giant beasts unlike anywhere else in the world. But part of that to me is that um, they're still kind of treating them as a, a property. Uh, they're they're mm-hmm. still um, placing themselves above it and, and kind of both using these creatures and kind of in this weird space between like a tractor and a pet. And, <laughs> That's an uh, amazing comparison. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, well, also, you know, while, while a few people who are really close to the animals have a more personal emotional relationship with them. And in that case, I sort of think to um, people I knew who like had a horse, you know what I mean? Which is almost like a different, I think something that's more powerful than you, you have a different relationship to than you have with your dog. And as much as people love their dog, it's easier to be impressed by or in some ways humbled in comparison to an animal that could very clearly destroy you. So I think people, people who I've known who have had horses have had kind of a kind of loving deference and respect and a sort of um, places where they do kind of um, uh, defer to the animal uh, in a way that I don't think we always do with our, you know, house pets. So I think basically I was trying to capture, to weave together some of these different relationships that I see people have with animals with the threat that this thing could utterly crush you or tear you apart. <laughs> and the promise to readers that that will happen. So <laughs> yeah, there's, there's definitely winks and nods in that. As a matter of fact, when Nick and I were reading issue one, we thought that there was kind of a moment where it was like, oh my God, they're going to snap and kill everybody. And then it just kind of didn't happen. You find out that it was kind of an, another thing that caused that. I believe it was in, if you've read issue one, it was like the earthquake or I believe is, is what it was. So do you like kind of giving readers that sense of, this is about to happen, but then take it in a completely other direction that people aren't expecting. Oh yeah. Because I think, you know, I think I thought about it more with this book than I have with a lot of other um, projects. And in part it's because I think something like Kong comes with a set of expectations, right? Like I think we almost know it. It's almost like, like King Kong is almost like Beatles music. You will never remember when you first were exposed to it. It's just like somehow in your earliest childhood, you know what this is and you kind of feel that you can almost recall parts of it without even knowing when you learned it. And so I think King Kong has some elements of that where there's expectations laid out before I even 
started writing. And so part of it is playing with that promise and playing with when those moments are going to come and hopefully you build to them uh, in a way that makes them more meaningful and also not exactly how you would have thought it would come out, where, where we're getting sort of a fresh meaning. And actually kind of uh, another thing I just thought about uh, from one of your first questions about what was important to me in uh, developing the story, another thing was trying to find that balance between delivering what people want out of a Kong story while also finding ways to surprise them and bring something new. Um, I really wanted to add depth to the natives and humanize them beyond what you've seen in a lot of um, Kong stories. A lot of them are from a really colonial perspective, like another boat of white people show up here and go, what are these weird backwards natives doing with a giant gorilla? Right, I'm, glad you I'm glad that you didn't do that. I'm glad yeah, that we got this, this, this organic origin of these natives and these Kongs. You just, that's something you spe did spectacularly well. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, my first, um, as soon as my wonderful editors on this book, Daphna and Alex, who have been tremendous to work with, when they reached out to me to pitch on what I would be interested in doing, before they even gave me all of the kind of um, mythos history from our, our licensor partners in this, um, one of the first things I said to them was like, can I do a story where the natives are our humans, so like our human characters and our vessel into the story so that rather than making them the other, we can just actually get to know these people and kind of add depth and flesh them out and make them relatable. Because right. I really do think like what humans want is what humans want across culture and time. Mm. That's one of the great, wonderful things about storytelling is it can connect you to someone who is not you. And to a certain extent, that extends to the Kong as well but so all of that was <laughs> kind of wrapped up in there and that's one way to me where like we're delivering on some of the classic elements of kong which is this adventure this other world this kind of jungle paradise slash hell um and a world of kind of like stone weapons and shaman and that kind of like throwback pulp uh jungle adventure mm -hmm. elements while also um, hopefully giving it um, depth and dignity that sometimes uh, they were not even in 1930s stories. And then, you know, once we get into the dinosaur action, I will tell you the, uh, the sort of reveal in the penultimate issue that leads into our climax was something that I was like, hey guys, to make this like different, I really want it to be this and I don't know if you're going to go with it. And I was so <laughs> I was so on pins and needles because I was so excited when this idea struck me. And I was like, oh, if they say no, I'm going to be so heartbroken. And they were 100%. <laughs> so I will say, end up, we end up with a monster fight unlike anything you've yet get to see in a wow. Kong canon. Um, and, uh, and it's still, still rooted in uh, the sort of a malleable science. <laughs> a shred of science. It's still rooted in a shred of science. But... Um, uh, I'm so excited for it. And Carlos is, yeah, he's been killing the book so amazingly. His detail, his, like, the force you can feel in his mm -hmm. art, just the sheer degree uh, of work he puts into every page, it creates such a palpable sense of place that I, I get lost in the pages every time he sends it in in the best way. So, so James, here's a question for you. If you had to manage your own separate creature in a fight against the Kong, 
what type would you choose and uh, what type of strategy or pep talk would you apply to it during and before the match? Good, good question. I would say um, definitely something with some good top armor. If I got to go with like a real animal, mm-hmm. maybe I'm saying, uh, oh, you know what? There, so, so we didn't go this route with the dinosaurs on the island, but I think an ankylosaur, you know what I mean? With yes. like armor top, low to the ground. Uh, good, good swatting kind of battering ram tail. You know when the when the <laughs> like to, oh yeah the Kong has to reach over to pick the thing up. You do a swipe, knock it off its feet. You know what I mean? Like I think it's, I think you go that kind of way on it. Yeah, it has a mace for a freaking tail. Yeah, nice. I like it. So, so maybe you can work it into, into another story. Who knows? But <laughs> Nick, Nick and I were talking, and I asked Carlos the same thing. And, and when we saw the trailer for Kong Skull Island, the movie, after reading the first issue of this comic, it kind of made us both really appreciate the trailer more. Like, we kind of, okay, we already know what's kind of going on. So there's no, you know, it's not a huge mystery when you see the trailer. So after the sixth issue drops many months from now, what do you want yeah. readers to get out of this story? Truly, hopefully, um, I think the, the thrust that I've been exploring, and I just want people to more consciously reflect on, is the, the way we too easily write off another living being as other, and the way that we too easily draw lines between ourselves and other thinking, loving, longing, compassionate creatures um human and potentially otherwise but again i'm not you know uh, uh, i think there's a lot of uh, ground we need to make up on caring about other people before my first priority is like animals but uh, you know if you're out there to save the animals keep on keep up the good work but (laughs) um but again i say this with a turkey sandwich in my hand but they're dumb and they're ugly I know saving the turkeys is even low on the animal rights people's list. Start with the cute ones. Issue five is out. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like the cover's going to be just calm, like with a a turkey in a a pan and everybody's going to sit around the table. Yeah, the uh, it it truly is the it's it's a it's a colonial parallel when uh, the the natives and the Kong sit down with the dinosaurs to share a meal. <laughs> <laughs> and you just hope that you're not the meal, basically. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for one side of the equation, but uh, that's, that's sort of true in most colonial stories. Yeah, so I, I sort of feel like hopefully by the end, we've kind of blurred a lot of lines that people in the story, and I think in the first moments of picking up a Kong story, the lines you think you feel comfortable drawing. Hopefully by the end of the story, some of those have blurred and disintegrated to a certain degree. And what we're really talking about, what you see is really bonding. These people are, what do each of them want out of life? What are we willing to fight for? What are we willing to die for? What are the values that are essential to us? And who's willing to sell those values out (laughs) for or something far more selfish. And I think those distinctions define who we should see as a danger, not some of the other things we define ourselves by. 
Absolutely. As a matter of fact, first two issues have been fantastic. You can get them now at your local comic shops or digitally. And then issue three is going to be available in September. James Asmus, writer for Kong of Skull Island for Boom Studios. Thanks for chatting with us this week. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Well, James, as we all know, one of the most anticipated movies coming soon, of course, is Kong of Skull Island. And it was just really interesting to finally read a book about Kong. And even we got a big hint at Kong's beginnings as well. Yeah, not only that, but like I like I was saying when we were when we were talking during the interview that I was just I it just really did make me appreciate watching that first trailer more of reading this comic because now we had even though it was just an issue, we had some sort of a frame of reference of what was going on in this movie. So you don't feel, you know, when you watch a trailer for the first time, you can sometimes kind of feel lost. And you're like, you're not really sure what this is about. Right. I felt like I knew more what this was about now because of this book. Well, not only that, but I like that when you read this book, what I love about it is that in, in, as somebody who we both know King Kong, we know we've read a lot of stuff about King Kong. We've watched the movies. The human element is something that can weigh it down a lot. And it's something that normally does weigh it down mm-hmm. a lot. In this, they don't, the humans don't weigh it down. They, they, the, the dialogue that's given by them, the way they're drawn, it just makes you feel that there's that substance with, you know, between the humans and the Kongs in this. It's like everything matters in this book. Right. Like you said, like sometimes, you know, the, they'll, you'll have things that have flashbacks and they don't really matter. Or like it, take Godzilla, for example, where the people, it's like, oh, I want more Godzilla. But in this, you're not feeling like, oh, I want more Kong. Because the story of this tribe is so fascinating and all the inner workings of stuff that's going on. So, guys, this is a book that if you're not reading it yet, you should be able to get issues one and two fairly easily. As a matter of fact, you can get them. You could get them on our website right now, digitally, down at nerdypodcast.com. And, of course, you know, hey, if you want to pre-order issue issue three, go and see if you can pre-order it. Because it's such a phenomenal, phenomenal series. I think six issues is going to be really, really good. I think that's a really great number to keep it at, too. And I think it'll get us closer to the... I mean, if you look, you September, October, November, December, that bit puts you into 2017, and that's when Kong Skull Island comes out in theaters. Exactly. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And as always, hey, if you want more of us on social media, we're at Facebook. We're at Facebook.com slash Down Nerdy. We're also on Twitter at Down Nerdy 757. I'm at Merck with one arm. The one is spelled out. James, go ahead. I'm at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. And like I said, you want more information on us, you want to buy the first couple of issues from our Amazon store, Safe and Secure, you can do that at DownNerdyPodcast.com. Go to the This Week section. Natalie's going to start playing this episode immediately. It's also going to give you chances to pre-order issue three, a whole bunch of different stuff that you can get at downandnerdypodcast.com. Including the two reviews we write each week on two different comics that we don't talk about on the show. And as always, preg safe comic book reading, always bag and board your comics.